0: Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And
1: I'm Andy Boel, and today we are pulling back to Hollywood's Crypt to review John Landis's Jim Belushi and Dan Aykroyd starring musical comedy classic, The Blues Brothers. We hope you all enjoy the show. And right off the bat, before anything, before we even talk about the movie, (laughs) there is a thing that I know that I ruined your morning with that I have to ruin our listeners time with potentially because you cannot talk about John Landis esteemed director of a lot of like classic eighties comedies and a couple action movies. You cannot talk about John Landis without talking about how he is directly responsible for the death of a child.
0: Among other people,
1: among other people. Um, The story for people who don't know John Landis, his star was on the rise because of stuff like the blues brothers he was given uh, a job to direct one of the segments of the Twilight Zone movie to which he went, oh, I've always wanted to make a Vietnam movie. And they went, that's great. We're doing the Twilight Zone movie. And he's like, Vietnam movie. And writes a a crazy, incredible Vietnam war sequence into his part of the film. Hires an actual Vietnam vet. And then like does so much pyrotechnics and explosives that this chopper pilot who was in Nam goes to him and says, yeah, this is too much. This is worse than anything I actually experienced. You're giving me PTSD and I'm more scared now than when I was in Vietnam. Knock off all the pyrotechnics. And John Landis says, oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. We'll, we'll make it safer. We'll make it less. The chopper pilot goes away. John Landis turns to his pyrotechnics and is like, I want more. I want bigger shit. I want it closer to the helicopter. Which led to a helicopter crash in the middle of a scene killing the, the star of his part of the film as well as a child actor whose parents did not speak English and were not told this was going to be happening. It's terrible. He then made his funeral their funerals about him. John Landis sucks. It cannot be overstated.
0: So anyway, Blues Brothers...
1: Blues Brothers, featuring John Belushi, who is a horrible misogynist, and Dan Aykroyd, who hasn't done anything bad as far as I can tell, but deeply believes in a very specific kind of the occult, in that he believes that, like, crystal skulls carry human life force and stuff like that. There are documentaries. So, this is the table we've set.
0: So what you're saying is just a light dusting of toxic masculinity.
1: An 80s dusting of toxic masculinity, which means that the dust is, in fact, cocaine. (laughs) Yes, yes.
0: Yes, indeed. Because people on this film were rewarded for doing a good job with lines of coke.
1: This is maybe the most coked out film We've ever seen.
0: (laughs) Well, so that might explain James Brown, like stealing the blues mobile at one point. (laughs) Right. Getting arrested for it. And he's like, I'm James Brown. Can you not please?
1: To which the person said, you're in the Midwest, Mr. Brown. I absolutely can and will.
0: Uh, It was the 80s. Driving while black wasn't, wasn't good to do anywhere.
1: No, it certainly wasn't. But with all that said, we have have problems with the director. We have problems with the leading man. We're keeping a close eye on the other leading man. But, like, so dear listeners, here's the thing. This this man would, would eventually lead to inadvertently murdering a child. And this is an enjoyable film.
0: Yes. And... There were so many moment, moments we turned to each other and said, "Well, I blocked that out."
1: I forgot there were Nazis.
0: I forgot, which is not something I thought I would say today. Yeah, right. But I forgot there were Nazis was a thing cuz we both just completely s- cleanse that out of our brain.
1: Which it, it, it's a fair it's a fair part of the plot. So okay, for those of you who missed the film, how how it, it despite everything we've said in the opening few minutes here it is worth your time yes. but if you've missed the blues brothers it is the story of Jake and Elwood Blues uh, a pair of near well musician brothers who Jake in the opening moments of the film is released from prison And they spend the movie on a mission from God to save their childhood orphanage by raising money to pay off the tax collectors. In doing so, they get the band back together, which is literally where this trope came from,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and run afoul of Hicks, Illinois Nazis, the police... And a couple murderous um, love interests.
0: A couple. And
1: by a couple, I mean only one. I don't know why I said a couple.
0: <laughs> Just the excellent Carrie Fisher who is presence enough to be a couple of people. But I do appreciate, I will say this, of all the people who are after Joliet, Jake, and Elwood, the one person who represents an actual threat is Carrie Fisher's character. Yes, Absolutely. She's the only one who gets any kind of close.
1: And she gets close to straight up murdering them several times. Like, it is only through the logic of comedy that they survive numerous, like, rocket launcher attempts and flamethrower assassinations at the end of the film, like, she's she has them dead to rights and he just kind of makes, he, he begs for his life for her and she falls back in love with him for a second. And then he drops her in the mud and they walk away. And I'm like, you could still shoot him, Carrie Fisher.
0: Well, what I appreciate is that Dan Aykroyd's uh, Elwood tips his hat at her and goes, ma'am. And then just keeps walking <laughs> or like, nice to meet you. He says something sassy. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, this is very, like, Chicago gentlemanly.
1: Yes, which, like, that is the thing with both the Blues Brothers, but especially Elwood Blues, played by Dan Aykroyd, who I think, on this viewing, it really solidified in my mind, and maybe it was already the case for you, Elwood is the superior Blues Brother in every conceivable way.
0: Oh, absolutely. I would watch a movie of just Elwood.
1: Well, (laughs) I've got good news for you about the sequel, then. (laughs) Oh, is it just Elwood? Well, no, but it was after John Belushi had died in real life. (laughs) So they got John Goodman to like not replace Joliet Jake, I don't think, but like be a new Blues Brother. And they added like two more Blues Brothers, one of whom was an African-American guy and another one was a 10-year-old. Blues Brothers 2000 is a whole fucking vibe and it is not (laughs) on the list.
0: For why?
1: Because it is... It is maybe the first movie I ever in my life heard about where people were like, oh no, that is a flaming pile of garbage of a movie. Like that movie does not work on a conceivable level.
0: Points to half of our list. Again, for why?
1: You realize you're just talking me into adding it to the list, right?
0: Might as well, we've seen worse. (sighs) How this didn't age well is it's a movie. Like half of this is how
1: this didn't age well. How this didn't age well is it was written by John Landis and Dan Aykroyd. And and, and I know you're thinking I'm saying that because I've clearly proven I hate John Landis. No, I just mean it was written by an entitled white dude in the 80s and another entitled white dude who was like moments away from walking onto SNL. Or no, 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 this movie was well after SNL because this is the first ever Saturday Night Live spinoff movie. Yes. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, you have two white dudes writing a, a rock and roll love letter to Chicago, which intrinsically means that there is a huge component of African-American culture and music in the Chicago scene. And you know what? I suppose. I suppose they could have done worse and just done a bunch of erasure.
0: They could have.
1: But instead, what we get is like a really good Ray Charles cameo.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And a really offensive James Brown one.
0: Uh-huh. The the church scene is is a lot. It starts, okay, as someone who's been to a Black Baptist church, granted in West Hollywood, not in Chicago, it starts relatively, like, okay, believable. But then as it continues, it gets worse and worse. At some point, there's people backflipping in the air inconceivably high above the church rafters right
1: like it's very clear that at some point John Landis who was writer and director was like we need to get a couple trampolines I want you people going as high as possible doing backflips we're going to be magically realistic about what the Black Baptist church experience is like but then that's the only time in the entire film there's magical realism like Ah! I I think so.
0: The nun closes the door without touching it.
1: Oh, yeah, there's that. Okay, okay.
0: There is a whole scene where the guy is, like, suddenly wearing a suit, and there is, like, a star-studded background.
1: Oh, you know what? You're right. Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. You're right. There is a, a current of magical realism throughout the entire film. It is the one time it seems mocking fair like that's the big thing and it's so strange because it's it it is the first time in the movie you really see any prominent african-american stuff aside from cab calloway's character telling Mm -hmm. them the plot of the movie um and it it just goes so much to 11 and so bombastic have
0: you seen Yes!
1: Yes! Jesus H! God, Christ! I have seen the light! And the other times you experience that, like, yeah, you're on, like, that side of, of South Chicago, and the Ray Charles number turns into a song and dance number, and the Aretha Franklin number turns into a song and dance number, but it just, I don't know, it just it it only sits not well with me during the James Brown church segment.
0: I think it's because we're looking at a group of people who are regularly mocked in white street media. Like in the Ray Charles number, it's joining along with. Sure. And in even in the Aretha Franklin number, where there is definitely this like class punching down of like women versus men, because... Uh, Oh gosh, um, Aretha Franklin's boyfriend, who I Murphy Murphy um, says at one point. Now listen, you're the you're the woman, and I'm your man, and it's just that's a whole problem. So there's very clearly like some gender classism going on. But even in that number, it's not mocking; it's going along with. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, like, that's that's an entire thing. This doesn't come close to passing the Bechdel test.
0: Super not. Every woman we see in this movie, other than the landlord lady, is angry.
1: Is angry. I don't think you see two women in the same shot unless it's a dance number mm-hmm. or, like, they're extras in the background. Mm-hmm. Um. This movie extensively features Nazis, and it, it, it rightfully mocks them at every turn, and they are, like, one of our primary antagonists, so at least it's not pro-Nazi. But, but. But. No, the one thing I did say is, like, so the first time you see the Illinois Nazis, it's a traffic jam, and the cops are, like, basically keeping all the people who want to beat the shit out of Nazis away because the nazis won their fucking protest or like one cop makes fun of it but the thing that i'm sitting there being like is oh nothing's changed in 40 years cops are not letting nazis get the shit beat out of them which is something that nobody should allow so it hasn't HL well in that aspect and neither has society
0: oh boy but there is so much to this movie that has a lot of heart and i think that's why it's so beloved Is like there is a sense of really genuine charm. Yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I would put a lot of that on the actual performances. Yeah. Um, Say what you will about John Belushi and his wild misandry, but he had that. I'm the funniest guy in the room and I know it quality to him. We've talked a little bit and we should talk more about how like, Elwood, Dan Aykroyd, is actually really charming in a super awkward kind of way.
0: He is. I think it's the fact that he's like, he's so dedicated to his brother. He comes, he picks him up, and it's no nonsense. He drives up in an old beat-up cop car, and he and his brother argue about why didn't you pick me up in the Bluesmobile? What happened to the Bluesmobile? You sold the Bluesmobile? Okay, this car is fine. I guess, whatever. And then they jump a freaking bridge and all Elwood says is, so what do you think? And that's like his very lovely charm.
1: Right, yeah, absolutely. It's so much stuff like that. It's the moment where they get pulled over and the entire time, like Jake's cursing under his breath and Elwood is trying to be polite to the officer and then immediately guns it immediately guns it and begins one of the greatest car chase sequences in all of cinema.
0: Oh, the one where they drive through an entire real-life mall?
1: The one where they drive through an entire real-life mall that was said to be demolished anyway.
0: And they were like, <laughs>
1: oh, can we just destroy this thing?
0: And they were like, okay. Okay, why not? <laughs> that um, Between that and Stranger Things, like nostalgia, I'm like... Man, I want to go to a mall. but oh, like, sure. Not a mall now. A mall in the 80s.
1: Yeah, right.
0: I want to um, time travel.
1: A mall with neon and lots of windbreakers.
0: Yeah, where you can smell the cigarette smoke pouring out of the bathrooms because that's what you could do in the 80s. You could smoke inside.
1: Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's... It, a lot of really great performances. And even beyond, like, yeah, we're, we're kind of carried through the film by Jake and Elwood. But at the same time, the thing that I, I think this movie did, I don't, like, have anything to really base this off of other than watching it. But, like, the thing that truly makes this interesting is this is a movie where you get James Brown, Aretha Franklin... Ray Charles, Cab Calloway. And then like the entire blues brothers band are a bunch of like famed and beloved musicians who only other musicians know about like Donald Duck Dunn is a real person who had a real esteemed career and played bass with Skinner or something like that. Oh
0: my God. Okay.
1: Like the entire band, Murphy Dunn, Bones Malone, Willie Two Big Hall, Blue Lou Marini, Matt Guitar Murphy, who is a bitch. He's the one who leaves Aretha Franklin.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, And yeah.
1: is like really shitty about it. Um, but this is just filled, it, it truly is a love letter to classic rock and roll.
0: Mm-hmm. Like,
1: the thing that birthed rock and roll, rock and roll. All we're missing is Little Richard.
0: Who is busy doing other better things. Oh, for
1: sure. I'm I'm positive.
0: And I appreciate so much they did a lot of pre-recorded um, songs. Some performers weren't used to lip syncing. So poor Aretha Franklin was like, um, uh... And they just had to cut her performance together for many, many takes. Because she's like, I'm not used to not blowing out speakers. You want me to sing and record and then not sing? Okay.
1: I have two modes. Off and spectacular. There is no middle ground.
0: There is no middle ground. I am Aretha Franklin. I also... I don't know where else to say this. I appreciate that because the boys are on a mission from GAD. Indeed. The Vatican newspaper called this film a Catholic classic. Right. And recommended that it was good viewing for Catholics.
1: They're not going to catch us. We're on a mission from God. Which is, is, yeah, like what, what can you say?
0: (laughs) Oh, Andy, what can you say? Because there's, Okay, so the scene where we have the nun closing the door without touching it, there's life-size crucifixes? Crucify? Crucifus? Crucifixes?
1: I'm going to go with crucifixes.
0: Crucifixes. There's life-size crucifixes everywhere. Like, you walk five feet, there's more crucifixes. There's more crucifixes that way.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm like, okay, so the Catholic Church watched the first, like, 10 minutes of the movie saw the people going into the place with the crucifixes turned it off and went yeah that'll do it.
1: Well the other thing though about that like I get your your point and that's very funny but thinking about it we watched the unrated version like I just noted that when we pulled it up on Mm -hmm. Amazon and I was like oh I I wonder what the differences are but there was no nudity that I could think of there's no actual violence of any real kind beyond like people pulling themselves out of rubble and like a single car explosion sure there's language and there's you know drinking and smoking but like Catholic Church doesn't actually mind drinking and smoking so like I can see how they were like oh this movie is too cool <laughs> This movie is too sweet and sick and awesome. (laughs) And even though we, the Catholic Church, railed against this kind of music once upon a time, now all of the people who like it are like our old parishioners. So we're going to get behind it. Again, we are the Catholic Church.
0: Also, this movie is very extra. And the Catholic Church is nothing if not lovers of a good ritual, and a good performance. So, there is that. There
1: is, in fact, that.
0: (laughs) And there's so many good performances. We have John Candy just being adorable.
1: John Candy, who we both were like, oh, John John Candy." Candy. For the record, John Candy never did a bad thing in his life, as far as we know. No. Never hurt a soul. Just came in and was in movies and cameo performances and was like really wonderful the entire damn time. Mm. But yeah, like like Cab Calloway, who was like one of these musicians, he has a little bit more asked of him than Ray Charles and everyone else. He has to do actual acting throughout the film, and he's really great to the point where you already brought it up. We have the uh, Magical Realism rendition of Heidi, 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 High," Mm -hmm. where, you know, all of a sudden he's doing it like he did it big band style in the 50s. And that really kind of feels like the emotional climax of the film. Mm
0: -hmm. Like
1: we get another whole half hour, 20 minutes of which is car chase. (laughs) But that is the moment where I was like, oh, I'm I'm peaking emotionally
0: Really?
1: I think so, yeah. Okay,
0: I peek emotionally at everybody needs somebody.
1: That's fair. Because
0: that's like, that's the high, we're the blues brothers, we're going to play the very, like, that bass line, or that brass line lives rent free in my head. It will always live in my head. It's just there. (laughs) It's tattooed on the inside of my eyelids. So the fact that like that for me, they play the song. They play just one song. And then as they're like dancing around, they tell the band, hey, we're going to peace out because there are people after us. Just like cover us. Cool. And the band goes, cool. Cool. And they leave.
1: The entire Illinois Police Department is after us. We're going to bounce.
0: We got to go. And then the last 20 minutes is just like slow release of tension. But it's like increasing at the same time because it's like more and more and more and more likely that they're just not gonna escape this
1: right and I I, I look back on the statement I just made I do think the concert I'll say that the yeah. concert yeah 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 is the emotional crescendo of the film but then like you still have these insane incredible 20 minute long, car chase sequences that broke a world record at the time. It was like the most cars destroyed in a single film or something. You have this violent, fast paced sequence immediately following that. So it's opinions may vary of where the crescendo is, depending on how much you like a good car chase scene.
0: Mm -hmm. So I will say the thing we have, like we have that emotional building But the last scene, the part that makes the tension so good is that we have, like, the entirety, like you said, the entirety of the Chicago police coming up the elevator and, like, or coming up the stairs and Jake and Elwood, like, throwing every piece of furniture they can find in front of doors to make the police have to go longer. But, like, in between that, we just have elevator music and Jake and Elwood just, like sitting in an elevator that's playing like a very elevator music of the girl from impanita like dun, yeah, dun, right. dun, 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 dun. and meanwhile the entire chicago police is like Wah! it's very good the timing is very classic it is
1: very good and it's also filled with a lot of really great comedic moments like when the illinois nazis are like falling off a cliff And just the the group inferior turns to his commander and he's like, I've always loved you. Like, that's funny. The moment where Jake and Elwood literally sign the check, get the receipt, turn around, and there's a million guns pointed in their face. That's funny.
0: Or when they're talking someone into booking the hall for their band and they finally come to an agreement, Jake and Elwood are in a spa. Or like in a sauna.
1: Yes, And then the
0: camera pans out and the entire band is also there in a sauna with them. And they're like, let's go, boys.
1: Yeah. Like, it's, it's very clear, like, you can't not call this a comedy. Yeah. This is a comedy. It is a exciting comedy, but, like, at the end of the day, its purpose is to be funny. But is it cult?
0: it made a lot of money
1: it did make a lot of money and it's it's so here's the thing I think this has come all the way around I think this maybe started as a as a huge hit but the longer and longer that we go since this movie came out the less and less prevalent it may be in people's minds especially mm-hmm. as like, the theme and the setting and the tone become more foreign and it becomes more and more of a period piece i think this ages into something like cult in a way that like you you can't just say that about any movie you can't say that about any movie that t- that you know is set in the past but it was present day when it was filmed some movies are just like that. But this, because it is so over the top, because it is so entrenched in the 80s Chicago of it all. Yeah. Because it's got such characters and is so quotable. And just like the Blues Brothers, the image of the Blues Brothers, yeah. is a thing that for a long while was going on at Universal Studios well after you had people who might recognize them. So there's children walking around Universal Studios who see like the Blues Brothers get out of their car and do a, sing- a song and dance number. And are like, I have no idea what I just experienced. <laughs>
0: no, no. Are you one of those children, Andy?
1: I was for a while before I saw the movie. <laughs> like I, I definitely knew who Jake and Elwood Blues were from a theme park attraction before from an actual film.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
1: Uh, Beyond that, personally, like, there's such a iconicism to it that in our high school drama department, it was a tradition started by your husband.
0: What did my husband do?
1: To have two people. So at the end of the year, there was a drama club banquet and always be a costume party because theater kids are extra. And it became a tradition that Alex and his best friend Nick started to dress as the Blues Brothers. And they did this like three years in a row. And then when they graduated, me and Nick's younger brother, Matt, took up the mantle of dressing like the Blues Brothers. (laughs) It must have been two years in a row. And then when we graduated, we literally passed it on to two other kids. It was like, okay, listen, I know you will get this you have to dress as the Blues Brothers for the drama club banquet. It must be done. It is tradition.
0: It is, it is written in blood. So spicketh is a
1: <laughs> Exactly. So, like, I, I have to imagine if there is a couple of kids in Florida Where one of their dads grew up in Chicago and deeply loved this movie and showed it to his kid, and it impacted him in such a way that it became a costume tradition for an entire school. Sure. There had to have been others. We don't know how many Joliet, Jakes, and Elwoods are walking around the streets these days.
0: (laughs) I'm just picturing, like, at the end of the world when the aliens are looking at pictures and they're, like, finding Timber Creek photo albums and they're like,
1: Great Earth Girls are easy callback.
0: You're welcome. <laughs> one whole episode ago. Two whole episodes ago. One, one, whole, one episode whole episode ago. ago. This movie is delightful, and it's a lot, and it didn't age well, and the people who made it are terrible, but it's fun.
1: Yes, it it is undeniably fun, and there is a lot to enjoy about it if you just want to, like, turn your brain off and watch a fun comedy with a lot of good music numbers. If you want to, like, it's got the second worst Rendition of Stand By Your Man in all of cinema, <laughs> beaten only by the James Bond film Golden Eye. Sure. Um, it's got Carrie Fisher as a. I, I'm saying this backwards. Millie Bobby Brown is a dead ringer for young Carrie Fisher. And this movie, like, solidifies that.
0: Yeah, just Carrie Fisher knew the earth, earth was round. Yeah, indeed. Because she's a goddamn space princess.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we didn't even mention that. Carrie Fisher, in between Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, mm-hmm. just like saying, fuck it, I want to be in this movie, nearly choking to death on set and having her life saved by Dan Aykroyd and being so smitten by the act of him saving her life that they got engaged.
0: Which I just imagine, like, it could not have gone well. It was never going to last. But I want to imagine what those, like, two months where they were madly in love and entangled were like.
1: It's Dan Aykroyd turning to her after they've just had really coked-up sex. And dead serious, he means it going, Okay, I need you to introduce me to George so I can learn about the Force. (laughs) And Carrie Fisher going, Oh, shit.
0: Carrie Fisher being like, I have to go douche because I want no part of you inside me anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is this is a movie uh, this is a movie about like the 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 deep roots of rock and roll in which our antagonists are cops, country music performers and Nazis.
0: And Carrie Fisher.
1: And Carrie Fisher. But except for Carrie Fisher, like, there's something deeply appropriate of, like, who aren't the enemies of rock and roll?
0: These Nos- things. Nazis. What was the third one?
1: Country music singers.
0: Uh-mm. But, like,
1: douchey ones.
0: Uh-mm. Yeah, okay. The good old boys, we can agree, definitely are dead at the end of the movie, right? The
1: good old boys are a thousand percent dead at the end of the movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Like, that That RV exploded.
0: It exploded. And the Nazis are dead. And then, as usual, the cops live far too long. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> but you know who else lives long enough? God rest him. We love him.
1: This is going to be so awful if Kevin Bacon dies before this episode comes out.
0: No. It, spit it out. Stop it. Undo it. <laughs> Say it backwards three times. Then spin around in front of a mirror and summon him. Oh, is that how we do it? I, I don't know. That's how kids supposedly summon Bloody Mary. Did you never play this at sleepovers? I never
1: heard about the spin around and say it backward. I I just heard say it into the mirror three times.
0: Yeah, you say it into the mirror three times at like midnight and then like she shows up. And I like yeah. one time stood in front of a mirror and then I chickened out.
1: Fair enough. If you do a line off a mirror at midnight, John Belushi shows up and asks for some. (laughs) You know who doesn't, you know who didn't know D from cocaine? (laughs) Kevin
0: Bacon? As far as we know. As far as we know. You know what, just for that, you get to go first.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, I went with the objectively best character in the film, um, Dan Aykroyd's Elwood Blues, who was in Nothing But Trouble with Demi Moore. And Demi Moore, as you might know, was in the amazing uh, military legal epic A Few Good Men with Kevin Bacon. Sure. Now, how did you do it in one? Sean Belushi, how
0: was an Animal House.
1: Oh, god damn it, I should have known that
0: with Kevin Bacon. Oh,
1: I really, really, really should have known that.
0: That wasn't even Alex, that was me. <laughs> I am your god now.
1: <laughs> I tip my hat to you as Elwood did in that sewer,
0: <laughs> ma'am. <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, no, good job. Like, I, I really, ah. See, I always forget Kevin Bacon is an animal house because that's one of his, like, I'm barely in this movie performances.
0: Mm-hmm. That's how you get it.
1: Good on you for remembering.
0: Thanks. Speaking of my amazing memory, I do remember that for every movie we watch, we have to give it an Oscar. Indeed.
1: A couple of Oscars, because even movies that were directed by somebody who would eventually kill a child and make that child's funeral about him, the movie deserves an Oscar.
0: The movie does deserve an Oscar. I gave this movie the Oscar for Best Bandmates, because the bandmates go through living hell and back just for a chance to perform with their buds.
1: Yeah, it can't be overstated how big of a deal the blues brothers music review is as a concept <laughs> cuz we have at least two people throw away perfectly good lives in mr <laughs> fabulous and matt guitar murphy uh-huh just to play with the band again uh-huh and then like be cool with going to prison
0: be totally fine with going to prison be totally fine with throwing their lives away, be totally fine with being owed a significant amount of money.
1: And getting strung along by Jake the entire time.
0: Correct. Right, right. So, best fan mates.
1: You know what? They d- they damn well deserve it.
0: They do damn well deserve yeah, it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, we talked about it extensively. My Oscar was most cocaine on set. Because <laughs> like we said, like... Okay, we can tell stories about, like, the director of Conan the Barbarian getting really coked up and then, like, shooting an arrow at a snake. We can talk about, like, Carrie Fisher and her coke nail in Star Wars, The Star Wars. I have never heard of a film where if it was the middle of the night and you're doing a night shoot and you, like, do a good job on your take, like, you do a good focus pull, the director sends his coke boy over and is like, you get a bump. (laughs) I have never heard of a reward system for cocaine (laughs) until this movie.
0: Oh, my God.
1: James Brown got coked up and stole a car. (laughs) John Belushi got coked up and, like, went to some dude's house and, like, asked for a sandwich and crashed on the couch. And, and Dan Aykroyd and John Landis had to go find him and go door-to-door door knocking. <laughs> and somebody opens the door and just sees them and is like, oh, you guys are here for John Belushi.
0: Is he yours? He's
1: on my couch.
0: Oh, good. His mom came. <laughs> and Dan Aykroyd's like, you can't do this again, Johnny.
1: Like we we will maybe hear of other like fabulous cocaine-induced stories. We will maybe watch movies that are clearly devised of because of cocaine. I don't think we will ever watch another movie that cocaine has as intrinsically in its bone marrow a hold of as the Blues Brothers. Yep. So much cocaine.
0: So much cocaine. Let's hope that cocaine is not in our next movie, which will be a Christmas movie.
1: It will be a Christmas movie, so there will be white powder. Boo! (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, I'm going to add blow to the list.
0: (laughs) No! Okay, actually, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is very Western, uh, white person of me our next movie will be a holiday movie because...
1: Ah, fair enough, yes.
0: Not necessarily Christmas.
1: Not necessarily Christmas, um, but so, yeah, we have timed this out where this is our November episode. As you know, you're listening to it. Our next episode is our December episode, and we want to make sure to do a holiday-themed movie. And I do mean holiday because out of a sublist of 15 films... We do have Christmas movies. We also have holiday movies. We also have a couple of Hanukkah-based movies. We, we have a gamut of December-themed movies. And every episode, we put our faith into the Hollywood crypt. And this time, we are going off of a much shorter list than normal, but nonetheless, we are still going to use a random number generator to put fate into our hands. And see what movie we are going to be watching. And next time on Cult Fiction, we are going to be watching number 9. Number 9 out of our special 15 holiday list is the Netflix cult movie, which is an oxymoron in and of its own damn self, The Christmas Prince, which I have never seen and Stephanie is making a very excited face over.
0: <gasps> I am so excited for you to watch this and hate it, but love it, but hate it, but love it.
1: The only thing I know about it, there, there is somebody on like, the, the, the woman who's the lead is somebody where like, yeah, Rose McIver, who yes. is the lead of A Christmas Prince. The only other thing I've seen her in is the CW show I, Zombie, where she plays like this punk goth zombie chick. Correct. And that is such a juxtaposition that I just don't know what to do with it.
0: This movie is like if The Prince and Me and every Christmas holiday tropey movie had a baby. Okay. It's very bad and very good for its badness.
1: Perfect.
0: And you will love it. And is absolutely cult because it created such a conversation at the time. But, uh, but we'll talk about that later because that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at CultFictionCast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the clip for now.
1: But join us next time as we dive into a world of meta Netflix cross movie pollination. And you have to deal with a lot of Star Trek references. And I will not be explaining that at this time. <laughs> for Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boal. Um, but yeah, it, it very much comes across. I, my brain just fell out of my butt. I don't know where I'm going with that.